The day is Easter Sunday. And Christians all around the world are gathering this morning, most likely quarantined, but we are gathering together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, from the dead. Now, as we're gathering together to celebrate this, we're celebrating in the most unexpected way this year. Rather than in buildings with thousands of people, we're in our homes with our families. And we're celebrating this truth. Now, I want you to know, at Scotts Hill Baptist Church, we are unapologetic that we absolutely believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is one of the most important events in all of humanity. And it is the most important event for the church and for every believer. Why is it so important? Because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he once and for all proved that he indeed is the Son of God. When Jesus rose from the dead bodily, he once and for all proved that he indeed is the Savior of the world. When he rose from the dead on that Easter Sunday morning, he proved that he fulfilled God's plan for redemption for humanity. In fact, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then his very character would not be credible, and we could not trust anything Jesus ever said. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christianity would have been extinguished in its crib, and it would have no future. But the reality is this. We gathered this morning because the tomb is empty. And we celebrate because our Savior indeed is alive. And we celebrate because not only do we have a king who is alive, not only do we have a living Savior, but we have a living hope. And we celebrate this with great joy. Now, we have the advantage that the disciples did not have. We're celebrating on the other side of the tomb. We're celebrating 2,000 years later when we know the whole story. And for us, it's great joy. We can think about Passion Week being a joy. We can think about Good Friday when Jesus was crucified being a joy for us. We can think about his burial being a joy. We can think about his resurrection being a joy. But the disciples could not think of that. In fact, they would not give thanks for the arrest of Jesus they couldn't consider it to be something to be grateful for that their Savior was crucified on a cross. They couldn't rejoice over the fact that he had died. Why? Because all of their hopes were in him. When he died on that cross, when he was buried, all of their hopes, all of their desires, all of their aspirations, all of their dreams, everything was buried with him. And as a result... Their faith was shaken, their world was rocked, and they were in, in, in ter a, a terribly despondent place. Now, some of you this morning who may be watching this may be a lot like the disciples. Maybe something has happened in your own life, something that has shaken your world where you've come to the place where you've even questioned the goodness of God. Maybe some of you have come to a place where there's been a circumstance or a crisis where you have even questioned the reality of the resurrection. And maybe some of you have gone through circumstances in your life where you've just turned away and you've walked away from everything that you've ever believed to be true about the gospel. Some of you may be believers, and you too have encountered something that has so shaken your world that you wonder about the goodness and the confidence of your own Savior. When times like this, in crises, God seems 
to shout the loudest to us. And it's in times like this that we have the opportunity to think that maybe we need a fresh experience of an unexpected Savior. That's what the disciples needed. And when their world was rocked, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, when he was hanging on Calvary's cross, they were not standing around the bottom of it thinking, now now how are we going to pass on the teachings of Jesus? How are we best going to communicate the parables that he taught us? How can we best help people to model their lives after him? No, they didn't think such things. Why? They weren't concerned about the message so much because their Savior had died. When Jesus died, no one believed his message. When he died, no one believed his claims. When Jesus died, the movement died with him. Why? Because Jesus was the movement. Jesus was the message. Jesus was the hope. Jesus was the security of their lives. But when Jesus died, all of their confidence was gone. Why? Messiahs don't die. The Son of God can't be killed. The resurrection and the life cannot be crucified. The unexpected happened with the disciples. Their Savior faced the unexpected death. Their faith faced the unexpected death, and they went into hiding. But then the unexpected happens, Easter Sunday. And in John's gospel, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, he records the events that took place on Easter Sunday morning. Here's how John says it. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene went there to anoint the body. She figured that two men had to do it in a hurry, so they probably didn't do a good job. But as she gets there, she sees that the stone is removed. And with the stone removed, no doubt she must have looked in, and she saw that it was empty. So what does she do? She immediately runs to the disciples. And then it says this, So she ran and went to Simon Peter, and the other disciple. Now, the other disciple is John. He's so modest that he doesn't want to say his name. She ran to the other, to, to the Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, it's interesting. John is so modest, he doesn't want to say his name, but he wants everybody to know that he was the one that Jesus really loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. She believed, like everyone else, that when somebody dies, they stay dead. She didn't run to the disciples and say, guys, guys, I got great news. It's true. He rose. He's alive. No. She went and she said, someone stole his body. Not even the disciples expected there to be a resurrection We find in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 11, when the disciples hear this, it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Neither did they think that Jesus would rise from the dead because they thought like everybody else. When someone's died, they stay dead. In fact, nobody expected nobody. But the disciples get up. 
And they decide to go to the tomb. And John continues in verses 3 and 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple, who is John. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, he's modest, doesn't want to say his name, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He's modest, but he wants everybody to know that he was faster than Peter. And it continues. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John was afraid to go in, but not Peter. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. It's interesting. It's at this point that John believed in the resurrection. It wasn't that it was the teaching of Jesus that caused him to believe. It wasn't that it was the miracles that caused him to believe. It wasn't the crucifixion that caused him to believe. It was the empty tomb. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changed his world and the world of all the disciples. In fact, we find that Peter and John run back to the house. Mary stays there. And then Jesus appears to Mary. The first person to see the resurrected Jesus is a woman. And Mary encounters the risen Savior. And then what happens, she goes and she tells Peter and and all the other disciples. And then Jesus shows up before them as well. And they see the risen Lord. You see, it wasn't just the teachings that transformed their life. It was a resurrected Savior. And the stone was moved away, not so much to let Jesus out, because the reality is he had a resurrected body. He could walk through walls, as we see later in the Gospels. Jesus did not move the stone so he could get out. He moved the stone to let the disciples in so they could see the reality of the resurrection. He moved the stone indeed to let the whole world see that he is alive. And it's from that point that the disciples' perspective began to change. With the resurrected Savior, they began to tell everyone that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose on the third day. In fact, All of the disciples began to write about this. That became a creed in the early church. And that creed in the early church went something like this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. The churches were reciting that. In fact, the apostle Paul comes to see the risen Savior as well. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he writes these words, which is an echo of that very creed. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, the Apostle Paul and all of the disciples and the gospel writers came to understand this, 
that the Savior that they were looking at and what they had tried to comprehend was the wrong kind of Savior. But through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, they came to encounter an unexpected Savior. The kind of Savior that Jesus always intended to be. <laughs> what was it about this unexpected Savior? What does he look like? Who is he? In this passage, we find three important truths about Jesus, our unexpected Savior. Here's the first thing we find in this passage, that Jesus is a suffering Savior. Christ died for our sins. From eternity past, it had been planned that he would be a suffering Savior. From eternity past, it had been planned by the Father that he indeed would crush his own son and that Jesus would hang on a cross and he would experience the most excruciating kind of death imaginable crucifixion. And why would he do that? Well, it's simple. As an unexpected Savior, Jesus settles my sin problem. He died for my sin. Now, in order for us to comprehend this fully, we need to understand the nature of sin. Why is it so important that Jesus would come to earth, take on human flesh, suffer and die on a cross for you and me because of our sin? Well, let me give you three things about sin. First of all, sin is universal. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means everybody. Every person in your home right now is a sinner and is born a sinner. If there are children in your home and you're able to speak, here's what I want you to do. I want you to repeat after me and I want you to say this to your parents. Ready? Say, mom and dad, I am a little sinner. Yeah. Now, mom and dad, I want you to look at your children and I want you to say this to them. Say this together. Say, you are not a little sinner. You are a big sinner like your mom and me or your dad and me. And if you're married, then you can say this to one another. If you're married at home and you don't have children, just simply say this. Say, you know, as long as I've been married to you, I'm absolutely convinced that I am married to a sinner. You see, the reality is we're all sinners. And sin is universal. Every single human being has the cancer of sin. But here's the second thing we need to see. Sin is undeniable. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? You and I do not have to convince ourselves that we're sinners. Now, we might outwardly try to not act like sinners. We might try to control our behavior so people don't think we're sinners. But you and I know our own hearts. We know the deepest, darkest corners of our heart. We know the thoughts that we would be embarrassed if other people know. We know the desires and the passions that we would be ashamed of if other people knew. And all of these are just simply reflections of a corrupt heart. And they're undeniable. But here's the third reason. Sin is unacceptable to God. We need to understand this about sin. It's unacceptable to God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? That's right, death. You see, our sin separates us from God. Our sin 
hinders a relationship with the holy God. And sin requires a penalty, and that penalty is death and separation. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your sins have made a separation between you and your God, that he does not hear you. So the reality is this. My sin, your sin, our sin, put Jesus on the cross. Many years ago, Mel Gibson produced and directed a very famous film, The Passion of the Christ. And he wanted to capture the brutality of what happened there on the cross. And on one scene, it's very interesting, and many people don't even know about this scene. It's the scene where the Roman soldier is actually nailing Jesus to the cross. And in that scene, you never see the Roman soldier's face. All you see are his hands, and here's why. It's the only part of the movie that Mel Gibson is in himself. And the hands that you see are his hands. And somebody asked, why did you want that role? And here's what he said. Because I always want to remember that it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You see, he is a suffering Savior because of your sin and my sin. Who else do you know who would die for our failures and our weaknesses, and our sinful nature. Jesus, the unexpected suffering Savior. But not only is he that, here's the second thing. Jesus is a sinless Savior. Of all the saviors in the world, no one can ever say that. Of all the superheroes, of all the people who have ever been helpful, can never say that they were sinless. Only Jesus can. It says in accordance with the scriptures. What does that mean? That Jesus fulfilled God's plan for the perfect sacrifice. Now, it certainly means that he fulfilled the prophecies of all the Old Testament. But it also means that he fulfilled the demands that God had for redemption. And the demands for redemption meant a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was sinless. Why was that so important? Because as an unexpected Savior, Jesus fulfills the Father's plan. He would be that perfect Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Why is that so important? Let me give you three reasons. My sin must be atoned for. That means my sin must have a covering Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's only through the blood that there can be a covering, a forgiveness for sin. And by Jesus going to the cross, the first thing he did, he was that perfect lamb that needed to shed the blood on behalf of others. His life for our life. And through that, we have forgiveness. Second thing is this. God's wrath must be appeased. His wrath must be settled. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. That big word, propitiation, literally means to satisfy, to appease God's wrath. Because God is a holy God and a right God, he can never wink at sin, but sin must be dealt with. 
and justice must come. The soul that sins, it shall die. And not only that, but the full wrath of God falls on sinners. And what does Jesus do? He takes our place. He sheds his blood. He takes on the very wrath of a holy God that belonged to you and me. And for the first time in his existence, the father turned his back and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He satisfied God's righteous anger towards sin. But here's the third thing we need to see. Sin's power must be abolished. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, he says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from our sins. There is power of sin that is broken through the blood of Jesus Christ. And through his blood, through his sacrifice, not only is there forgiveness in atonement, not only is there fellowship in appeasement, but there is freedom in abolishment. And as the perfect sinless Savior, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice so you and I can experience life. I love the way Isaiah writes this prophesying about Jesus' death. He says this in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Father was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He is a suffering Savior. He is a sinless Savior. But thirdly, Jesus is a supernatural Savior. We see this pictured in the last part of Paul's writing this creed that he was buried that he was raised on the third day. He's a supernatural Savior. As a supernatural Savior, he is not like God. He is God. And as an unexpected Savior, Jesus proves he is God. There are three things we need to know about this reality. First of all, there is nothing he cannot do. As God, there is nothing that is impossible for him, nothing too difficult. Secondly, there is nothing he does not know. As God, he is all-knowing and he sees all. He knows you intimately. He knows me intimately. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all. Thirdly, there is nowhere he is not. He is everywhere. At your darkest times, at your greatest joys, at wonderful times of celebration, He is there. You see, as the supernatural Savior, He knows you intimately. In fact, as the supernatural Savior, He is the one who made you. He's the one who has given you life. He's the one who has given you hope. As a supernatural Savior, He is over all life. 
as this sinless Savior. He is your perfect sacrifice. As your suffering Savior, He is your substitute. He took your place, my place. Believer, this is Easter Sunday. Some of you have been going through some difficult times. And the Savior that you've been looking for is not the Savior who is. Would you turn your attention today to the fact that he suffered for you? That he sacrificed for you? That he sustains you? And that he secures you for all of eternity? He is the King. He is your Savior. For those of you who are watching, and maybe you're not a believer, maybe someone told you to watch this with them and they promised you you could have lunch with them afterwards. Maybe it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend. But you've come to realize this morning that you're really looking for the wrong kind of Savior. Maybe you're looking for a Savior who can save your job. Maybe you're looking for a Savior who can maybe save your marriage. Maybe you're looking for a Savior who can save your kids, your grandkids. Maybe you're looking for a Savior who can save your financial investments. Maybe you're looking for a Savior who can save your future. And I want you to know something. That's not the primary reason Jesus came. He didn't come to save all the non-essential things in our lives. He came to save the most essential thing. He came to save our soul. You know, it's really interesting. When you look at the life of Jesus through the Gospels, he heals people. But more often than not, what we see preceding that is he forgives them. Your sins are forgiven. Then he heals them. Why? Healing always follows forgiveness. And some of you are looking for healing in your life apart from a saving Savior. You see, the most important thing this morning, this afternoon, tonight, whenever you're watching this, is that the Lord Jesus sees you. He knows you. And He has come to provide forgiveness and healing. But will you surrender? Will you yield your life to him? Will you say, I've been following the wrong kind of Savior and you're the only one I need because if you save my soul, then my whole world will be transformed and in your hands. Today, I want to plead with you that you would surrender your life to Jesus. You can do that right now. You can do it right now. Here's what I'm going to ask, and this is really awkward because I'm not in the room with you. But I'm going to ask you to do something. Believers and non-believers, I want you to do something right now. I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking at me. No, no, don't look at me. Close your eyes. It's just you and Jesus. As a believer today, would you give thanks that he is a suffering Savior? a sinless Savior, a supernatural Savior. If you're an unbeliever this morning, 
Would you surrender to him? And it's real easy. I'll lead you through it. Just pray this prayer to yourself. Not out loud. Just pray it to yourself. If you're at home by yourself, you can shout it. But just pray this prayer. Just say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I see now that my sin has separated me from you. And I see what Jesus has done for me. That he would die. That he would suffer. That he would come back to life to give me hope. And right now, I confess my sin to you. I repent and I turn from that sin. And I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. And come and live in my life right now. And today, just as you have been raised from the dead, that you would raise me from this spiritual death alive in you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to hear from you. And we'd love for you just to go online, scottsill.org, email us and let us know what God has done for you during this time. The service isn't over. Hang on. Because we promised we would do the Lord's Supper together today. It was on Thursday evening that Jesus gathered with his disciples. It was called Monday Thursday. And Jesus would be arrested in just a few hours. But he meets in an upper room with his disciples and they celebrate what's known as the Passover meal together. And at the end of the Passover meal, Jesus shocks them. He institutes what we know as the Lord's Supper. He begins to speak to them about a new covenant that God is about to make. A covenant not with the blood of bulls and goats, but a covenant in his own blood. Jesus' blood and his broken body. And in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, here's what Matthew records. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I wonder if you would do something just for a moment. Someone in your home, would you just offer a brief prayer thanking God for the broken body of Jesus? Let's do that right now. Amen. In verse 27, and he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Would someone give thanks for the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? Right now, just briefly, somebody pray. Amen. I trust that you have your bread and your juice. At this point, 
I'd invite every member of the family to go and break a piece of the bread off. Everyone get a piece of bread right now. After everyone has a piece of bread, take your bread and together as a family, dip it in the juice. Jesus says, take, eat in remembrance of me. After supper, it says that they sang a hymn and they went out. And they were celebrating. And we can celebrate too. Because we have a living king. We have a living savior. We have a living Would you join us as we sing together?